The uh, scripture reading uh, for this morning is from uh, Mark chapter 4. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 839. You'll be helped if you uh, follow along with us. And um, just a word, we're beginning our new sermon series that's going to last through the end of the summer. Uh, We've been in the book of Revelation uh, looking at uh, God's message to to the seven churches of Revelation. And now uh, we're going to begin a series on the parables of Jesus that will last throughout uh, the rest of the summer till the end of August. So page 839 in the Pew Bibles. Let's stand and read together God's word to us. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil. And produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes, and he takes away the word that is sown in them. And then these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This ends the reading of the word of God. You may be seated for a moment and silently reflect on it before we continue in our worship of God uh, this morning.
looks like I picked a really long passage to preach on this morning. <laughs> but it's good. This one is uh, at the beginning of this, this account of the parable of the sower is actually at the beginning of all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, collection of parables in their Gospels. So it holds this kind of key place. And I think as we look at it, you'll see that it's going to help us understand uh, not only this parable, but all the parables as well. The Lord, who knit together heaven and earth, as, as we said earlier in the affirmation of faith, that the God who upholds all things in heaven and earth, he has made it so that the smallest and most unsuspecting parts of his creation sometimes hold the greatest power. Now, to give an example, when we first moved into our home uh, a few years ago, we noticed something was up with the foundation of our house. And so we have a kind of an older house. It's over 75 years old. And we looked at it. There, there are these um, brick arches on our, on our front porch. And an arch, if you know anything about architecture, is like one of the strongest architectural forms that you can make. If you want to hold something up, if you want something that's going to last for a long time, build an arch. I mean, in the ancient Roman Empire, there's still arches that are standing today. And so we looked. Um, our Andrew Linear, our real estate guy, came, we came over and we looked at this house and we we saw these arches in the front had a crack in it. We are like, what could have done that? What caused it? And it looked like the front edge of our house where the porch was had over time sunk into the ground. And not just settled, like houses settle, you know, but it had, it had sunk enough to crack one of the arches. And we thought, what did that? I mean, is the house going to just fall into the, gr- the ground? I mean, what's, oh, I don't know if I, we want to live here. And so we had someone come and look at it, and they thought, you know, it, it's probably not going to sink anymore. It, it's okay. And true enough, I mean, we live there, and as far as I know, the house has not fallen into the ground. I haven't noticed anything. Um, but I, it always bothered me, you know, because, I mean, if you're in this house, you go, it's kind of nagging at you. And I said, well, what, what caused that, the side of the house to just start sinking? I mean, what could have damaged the foundation so much? Was it, did someone just drive a car into the side of the house? I mean, what happened before we bought this house? And uh, I talked to one of my neighbors who was actually born in the house next to me. He was born in 1929 in the house next to me. And I asked him, hey, do you know anything about our house? And he's like, oh, let me tell you. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll learn something. Someone drove a car into the house. He said, oh, your house used to have the most beautiful live oak tree out in the front. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was so great. Oh, it had so much shade. It was beautiful. I don't know why they took it down. And I thought, I know why they took it down. It was the, the, the tree or the house. I mean, if we didn't take that tree out, the whole house would have fallen down. So that's what it is. It was just a little tree. I'm sure when they planted it, they thought, oh, this is, this is going to be really nice. You got this little tree, no chance it'll ever affect the house. But you know what happens with trees, especially oak trees. Give it enough time, they get really, really, really big. Sidewalks, roads, foundations of houses, they've got no chance. No chance, chance, chance. The thing about an oak tree is that it starts as an acorn. I mean, this huge, impressive tree starts as a small seed. And you'd think you hold an acorn up next to a brick arch or a concrete foundation. You'd say, okay, acorn or stone and concrete, which is going to win? Ten times out of ten, given enough time, the acorn will win every single time. Every time the acorn's going to win. Because there's surprising, 
unexpected power in the smallest things in God's creation. So that, and I think that's what this parable is about. That's what I want us to see this morning. We're looking at a parable about the unexpected power of the small things. It's about the unexpected and surprising power of the word of God as it goes out into the word, into the world. But first, before we jump into this parable and try to explain it, um, I'd like to maybe give a few quick thoughts on how to read all the parables. Use some of the information that the Lord has given us here. Maybe it'll help in your own devotional time, your own Bible reading. And just as you're asking questions and you're examining for yourself and reading the scriptures before we preach it, that you'd be able to test and examine and see, what, is, what, what does this actually really say? Um, and so just to give you an understanding of what parables are, they're, they're part of this long tradition in Hebrew literature of wisdom sayings and wisdom writings. So the best and greatest rulers in all of Israel's history, uh, the best rulers, prophets, and teachers were also the ones who composed songs and proverbs of spiritual wisdom and spiritual truths. So King Solomon, for example, he composed, according to 1 Kings 4.32, over a thousand songs and 3,000 proverbs. That's what kings did in the Old Testament. Is they, they wrote wisdom out for people, for their subjects. And so um, there's actually five whole books of the Old Testament are just devoted to wisdom writing. One whole book is devoted to proverbs. It's called the book of Proverbs. Simplest name of any book in the Bible. Uh, and so the word proverb, it, it, it has a few different meanings. You know, in the Bible, it can be translated, uh, the same word can be translated as riddle or even uh, taunt, uh, analogy, comparison, or the word proverb can also be translated parable. So parables, these things, uh, these stories that Jesus tells, they're, they're similar to Proverbs. They're similar to Proverbs and other kinds of wisdom speech in that they use a comparison to bring out a spiritual or a moral truth. And the comparison, the, the, the symbolism makes the truth more vivid. It causes it to stick with you. It causes, uh, it, it causes the truth to trouble you and surprise you. Um, for example, uh, some of you might r recall uh, in the history of King David when the prophet Nathan came to David. You know, David had committed, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And God wanted to bring a message to David to say, David, I know what you've done. And so what did he do? He sent the prophet Nathan to go and tell David a story. A story about a rich man who had all the sheep in the world and a poor man who just had one little sheep that he loved more than anything, that he loved as his daughter. And then the prophet Nathan tells the story that, that the rich man came, and when he needed to cook a lamb for a meal for one of his friends, he didn't use any of his own lambs. He went off and he stole the lamb that belonged to the man, his only lamb. And David hears the story. He hears the parable, and he says to the prophet Nathan, who is that guy? That, that guy who just, that rich man, we need to put him to death. That, that guy's done a horrible thing. And the prophet Nathan says, guess what, David? You're the man. You see, the comparison, the story drew David in. And it made him vulnerable. And then God said, well, here, 
Here, I'm going to apply the truth to your heart now, David. I see what you've done. I know. And it's not right. I'm calling you out. Sometimes Proverbs do that. Sometimes parables can do that. But Jesus' parables uh, are more than just wisdom stories. They're more than just uh, stories or little messages that teach a, a moral truth to us. They're stories with intent. They're designed to do something. Jesus' parables are part of his announcement of the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom of God. They're part of his announcement that there's going to be this turning point in the history of all creation. That the kingdom of God is coming. The rule and the reign of God is breaking into human history. And it's not just an announcement about the coming of the kingdom. Jesus' ministry is a proclamation of the coming of the king. He's the king. (laughs) He's saying the king has come and with him his kingdom has come. So when we're looking at the parables, we always want to be asking ourselves, okay, what does this story say? What does it seem to say? What does it seem to compare that brings out something about the kingdom or something about the king? What does it say about the, the, the rule and reign of God that's breaking into the world? And what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the kingdom? What does it say about the king? In Matthew 13, Jesus explains uh, part of his method Uh, part of his uh, intent for telling the parables. It says that uh, he says he tells parables to fulfill the words of Psalm 78, which says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So parables are these ordinary earthly pictures, these ordinary stories that uncover, they reveal these hidden spiritual truths. Now, you can contrast that with the book of Revelation. Remember, we read the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation has these big cosmic pictures, these big cosmic images that correspond to something that's happening in ordinary life here on earth, in the life of of churches, in the life of God's people. So uh, the book of Revelation is kind of like an IMAX summer blockbuster movie where these these battles and uh, supernatural forces all at work and it's all real obvious and it's just there on the big screen and surround sound. But it corresponds to something that's just happening down here with men and women struggling and living. And the parables are different. There's stories about ordinary men and women struggling and doing ordinary things that correspond to these big, massive spiritual truths in heaven. So just like the book of Revelation, when we said that it was a a picture book, not a puzzle book, the parables are are pictures, uh, not just puzzles. Uh, But they're pictures of the kingdom and they're pictures of the king. So we always want to ask, um, what does it say about the kingdom? What does it say about the king? But we need to note here, and it's really obvious when we read this passage, that, that parables don't just reveal hidden truths. They don't just reveal hidden things. They also conceal. They can also hide the truth. They're a veiled way of speaking, and it has a double effect of drawing some listeners in and then frustrating others who aren't really interested in attending to what's being spoken. That's why Jesus, that's what Jesus is getting at here. Because remember, his disciples, uh, we saw a few others and his disciples get him alone, and they ask, Jesus, um, why do you speak in parables? 
Can you explain the parables to us? What's the deal? These stories, could you maybe explain things a little bit better? Could you make things a bit clearer for people so they can understand you? And so Jesus says to his disciples, this is what he says, to you who have ears to hear, to you has been entrusted the very secrets of the kingdom of God. That's what it says in verse 11. But for those on the outside, everything I say is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may hear but not understand. Otherwise they would turn and be forgiven. And he quotes this, this confusing, admittedly confusing, hard saying from the book of Isaiah. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Where God's commissioning Isaiah and he's saying, Isaiah, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go out and you want to, I want you to preach to my people who have run away from me who have brought judgment on themselves. And I want you to speak to them. And when you go and speak to them, you're going to speak to them and they will hear you, but they won't understand. They'll see what you're doing, but they're not going to understand it. They're not going to perceive it. And then Isaiah says, how long am I going to have to do this? He's probably thinking, this is kind of a depressing mission. How long am I going to have to preach and no one's going to respond? And God says, you're going to have to preach until my purposes are accomplished. You're going to have to be rejected until my purposes are accomplished for you. Until, it says in the book of Isaiah, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but until the great tree of Israel gets cut down to it's just a stump. And then from that stump will come a seed. And if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, if you know anything about the way God has dealt with his people, from the stump comes the seed, and the seed is the son, Jesus from the judging and the cutting down of this people, blessing comes to the whole earth. And so God is saying to Isaiah, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I think he's speaking to us right now, and he's saying, listen, Isaiah, I'm working on a way bigger timeline than you could ever imagined. And it's not the most important thing right now that everyone understands you. It's not important that everyone receive your message right now. And Jesus is saying that to his disciples. He's saying, hey, I was appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. I came to earth to die. I came to earth to be rejected. And I think when we look back on the course of God's providence in history, how he's ordered and ordained everything, and we can't really argue with his plan. Because through Jesus' rejection... So many are brought to salvation. So Jesus knows his message is going to be rejected. It's his intention to be rejected. But he's saying, I have a way bigger concern. I'm working on a way bigger timetable than you could ever imagine, disciples. So this is hard. Parables reveal truths. They conceal truths. They, they, they save and they judge. And so for all of us, I think this is a reminder. When we look at these stories from Jesus, we can't just sit casually back and go, oh, oh, that's kind of a nice thing. I'll chew on that for a while. We have to pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. We have to pay careful attention. Otherwise, his word will judge us. Every time God's word goes out, it either reveals or conceals. It either saves or judges but it always accomplishes his purposes for it. 
It redeems those who listen and submit to the word. And it judges those who don't want to listen to God on his terms. Who want to make God say what they want him to say. Who want God to speak in a way that's convenient for them. We don't get to decide how God speaks to us. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of his word have authority in our lives. It's all authoritative. It's all the word of the Lord. It's so important for us to see. And just just to drive this point home even further, you're probably like, don't don't drive it home further. But you see this in in John chapter 6. Remember, Jesus goes out and and he he feeds the 5,000. So bread and fish for over 5,000 people and everyone are going, this is so awesome. This is the kind of king we want. This is the kind of leader we want. It's like all you can eat buffet. We're going to follow him. And so they go home the next, and, and they get all their friends and they say, come follow this guy, Jesus. He's the best. You get free food. And so everyone shows up to see Jesus and they go to see him and they say, give us, give us the bread. Give us the, give us more food. And Jesus said, do you really want to know the secret things? Do you really want to know what the good bread is? And they're like, yeah, give us the good bread. He says, the real bread, the bread that saves, is my flesh. And if you eat my flesh, you'll have eternal life. And they go, eat your flesh? Are you serious? That, that's what this is all about? And they go, uh, no, we're not interested in that. And it says that everyone turned and left him. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept this? The crowd say, they, they turn and, and it says, the word says that his closest followers turned back and no longer walked with him. And then Jesus turns to his disciples after speaking these, these hard words. His word goes out and it divides and moves these other people away. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Simon Peter, you're, you're kind of the representative here. What do, what do you think? Are you all going to leave me too? And Peter looks at Jesus and this is what he says. Remember this. He says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And I heard those words that you spoke and other people, it sounded like the word of death to them. But to us, this is the word of life. We're not going to go anywhere else. And that's how it always is with the word of God. It goes out and to some, it's the word of death. And then to others who receive it, who submit to it, who listen and attend to it, who understand it, it's the word of eternal life life. This book, the Bible, is not an ordinary book. It's living and active. So now having kind of said that and set the tone, the questions we want to ask, the attitude that we want to have when we come to these parables this summer, uh, let's just spend a few minutes on this parable of the sower. And it's really great because Jesus basically just explains it for us. So in some ways, I, I, I think I got the easy one, Paul. Uh, but we saw that the word of God divides. We see that when the word goes out, it softens hearts and then it hardens others. And it goes out, as Jesus says, like seed sown on the ground. And some reject it, some accept it. And the reason I think that the Lord is so concerned with his disciples understanding this parable is that this parable doesn't just help us to understand all the other parables. 
it also tells the story of his entire ministry on earth. Really, it tells the story of the history of the whole world. So if they don't get this, he's saying, how are you going to get any of my teaching? This is what I'm about. He's saying, disciples, these are the secrets of the kingdom, and I'm giving them to you. And he's giving them to us today. So we're going to look at this parable, and we're going to say, what does this say about the kingdom? And what does this say about its king, Jesus? So the main character in this parable, the, 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 the person I want you to focus on, is not actually the sower. Jesus doesn't give us a comparison to say who the sower is. But he does say what the seed is. So what, what I would I- encourage you is look where Jesus explains. Because he doesn't explain everything, but he does make one, usually one element clear. And so right here, it's obvious that the sower or the seed is the word. The main thing being compared is the word of God. And Jesus is saying, the word of God is a seed. It's like a seed. And what I want us to see this morning as we look at it is the surprising power of the word of God when it goes out like a seed. Why is it surprising? Because first, it gets rejected. And then when it finally gets planted, game over. 30, 60, 100 times fruit. It's just exponential growth. So it's surprisingly weak. It's seemingly weak at first on the surface. And then when the word comes, it's surprisingly powerful, surprisingly potent. The surprise is that something so powerful could also seem to be so fragile. So first we're going to look at the word of God as it suffers resistance three different times. And then we'll spend a second looking at what Jesus predicts will happen when the word gets planted in the hearts of men and women like his disciples, like you, and like me. So first, let's look at the the seed, the word of God, being rejected. We see it's surprisingly prone to rejection and resistance. So first, uh, the word of God encounters hearts of people that are rocky. They're they're rocky like like a path. A person can hear the word sometimes, and it doesn't even have a chance to consider it before Satan the enemy of God and the enemy of the king, Jesus, swoops down and snatches it up. Simple enough. So other times it can seem like the word is really making progress in someone's life for a little bit. I mean, this is the the second instance. Someone hears the word and and you see huge growth. I mean, really, really quickly. You've, You've seen this happen. But all this energy is being spent in making a big outward show. Remember, the seed goes up, but it doesn't plant any root. And meanwhile, this person who seems outwardly like God's doing a great big deal in their life is really unstable. Uh, They have no roots. They have nothing actually supporting them. They have no foundation. Uh, The soil is shallow. Maybe you've seen someone like this uh, before. Uh, so, someone who has a ton of zeal for God. They love Jesus. They're you know, talking all the time. This big emotional effect. But they seem kind of unstable. I mean, I think that's pretty common. I think I've been that person before. Where you're like, that guy's really excited about something, but he just seems a little off base. <laughs> so this person, um, they have a huge emotional response to the word, but that's it. It only lasts a short time. For them, it seems like Christianity is a fad or a phase. And you can tell because as soon as trouble comes, 
as soon as it's not cool anymore in the eyes of the world to believe in God's word. Trouble comes to you because you believe in the word. Because you're associated with Christ. When that happens, these people are gone. They drop the word and they're off. And the word says uh, they're, dropped, they're gone immediately. So let's just stop for a minute after looking at these first two. And, and let's have a moment of application and just say Jesus is saying something really profound. That we don't want to miss it. He's saying in the second instance that if you accept his word, if you believe and receive his message, trouble is going to come to you. Now, we know that trouble comes to everyone in the world. Trouble, trouble and suffering comes to every person, every person that ever lived. But Jesus is saying, if you receive my word, if you're associated with me, you get special trouble. You get special suffering. You, it's so important to understand this uh, in our culture, especially because we think if, if I get God, God will give me everything I need and my life will be so easy. If you've just been walking with Jesus for a little while and you're in a honeymoon phase and God hasn't had cause to put your faith to the test yet or bring any persecution or trouble against you yet, beware, be careful, be careful. Jesus is saying trouble will come if you're associated with me, especially today. Trouble will come to those who associate themselves with scripture, with the word of God. And it's not because the world doesn't understand it. Sometimes they don't understand it. But sometimes they understand what we believe and it's offensive to them. Especially today. Jesus is saying trouble will come. Watch out if you don't have a foundation. Watch out if you don't have a root. So then the last rejection of this word comes because the word of God gets choked out by worries and wealth. This is what happens uh, when the word is sown among thorns. It says they're the ones who hear the word, but the, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and like thorns, they choke the word and it doesn't bear any fruit. The word is choked out by worries by the deceit of wealth. And we see this throughout the Bible, that God demands our allegiance. He demands our complete trust and submission to him. And here, in this instance with the thorns, we have a person who's heard, but they worry because they don't trust that God's really in control. The Bible commands us, don't worry. Don't worry. Your father knows what you need. And and I think when, when we get choked out by worry, when those thorns creep up, it makes us unfruitful because when we worry, we're not really trusting that God's providential care is, is taking care of everything, that God's not going to let anything come into your life that's not going to be for your good and his glory. But God is. He's ordering everything by his providential care. He's ordering everything for his good, for your good and for his glory. But if you worry, your, your, your mind is consumed um, with, with, it feels like the sky is falling. <laughs> you know that story of Chicken Little? The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, the, the sky is not going to fall. We know God's holding up the sky. 
So don't worry. Don't let worry choke out the word of God. And next we see the deceit of wealth, the deceit, the deceitfulness of riches. And just like worry, um, you know, the lies of wealth uh, occupy your thoughts. They occupy your attention. It's just constantly scrolling across your screen. We become preoccupied with making more, with saving more, with buying more. And it's, and it's just all we think about. And like thorns, it crowds out our ability to attend and submit to God's word. It shapes our priorities. It shapes our passion. Um, even it, for, for some of us, even getting out of debt can function the same way as worrying about making more. Because it's all you think about. It crowds out the word of God. And it crowns out your hope and your trust in his providential care for you. So in both cases, you're believing the lie that your safety and your circumstances are all you need to live the good life. You're believing, hey, I got God, but if I have God plus safety, if I have God plus material things, that's really what I need. It's God plus, not just God. And Jesus said, that's a lie. Those are thorns that will crowd out the word of God. If something other than God is gradually consuming your thought life, your conversations, your emotions, it will choke out God's word in you and it will make you unfruitful. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's just look for a second and say, uh, these all tell us some surprising truths about the king and his kingdom. All three of these types of people have a superficial encounter with the word that does not bear fruit. Hearing, they hear, but their hearing doesn't lead to understanding. So we can see already that it's not enough to just be around the message, to just hear the message. You have to receive the message. And second, what do we see about the king? Uh, We see God's wisdom, how incredibly shrewd Jesus is. He completely understands the way our hearts work. He completely understands what his mission and his message is up against in the world. He's never surprised. He names his enemies. He knows exactly how Satan works. He knows exactly how the lies of wealth and worry work. He knows exactly the power that trouble and tribulation can have. Um, and so he's never surprised. Next, and this is so important, we see God's timing. We see God's priority, uh, and we see his plan for the coming of the kingdom. It's operating on a completely different timetable than ours. We see the short-term growth of the second seed, and we go, man, that looks great. Short-term growth, that's so impressive. I mean, you, that big show that it just springs up, that, that God must really be doing a work. And Jesus is saying, be skeptical. Wait. We see a zealous person who's zealous for the word of God, and we're like, that's, that's it. That person must be really on fire for Jesus. But I'll tell you, perseverance beats zeal a hundred times out of a hundred. The true test of faith is will you persevere under trouble? Jesus is saying, you have a short-term plan. You look at the short-term, you have a five-year plan. And if something happens in five years in this world, we think, man, that's great. God's really making a change. We're really doing something. Jesus is saying, I have a five-million-year plan. So just step back and 
Don't be impressed by the, by the flashy things, by the quick growth. Step back and look for the things that persevere, the things that, that are rooted and bear fruit. So we have to ask ourselves now, do, do we see ourselves in any of these scenarios? If so, let's pray that God would make his word fruitful to us, that he would guard the seed, that he would cause us to receive it. I mean, if you see, it, it just seems like the odds are totally stacked up against the word. And so we have to rely on God's grace, do we not? I mean, all of these things are so common to all of us that it's a miracle that God's word bears any fruit in our lives at all. So we're just, we're just absolutely dependent on the mercy and the grace of God. If any growth happens, you know, it's all of God's grace. So now let's turn to our final point. The surprising, unexpected power of the word of God. Jesus is showing us here that the word, which seemed fragile at first, is incredibly fruitful, incredibly powerful. After, just start in verse 20 here. After suffering all kinds of rejection, it says, the word gets sown on good soil, and one, the ones who hear the word accept it, and they bear fruit. And they don't just bear a little fruit. First, they bear 30-fold fruit, three, 30x. Then, 60x, 60-fold, 60 times the fruit that they had at first, and then 100-fold. If you're not a math person, that's called exponential growth. That's not just a line that goes up like this. It's a line that goes like this into infinity. That's what Jesus is saying. Exponential, unbelievably powerful and potent fruit. (laughs) Fruitfulness beyond anything we could ask or imagine. It's like a dream. And over a long period of time, Jesus doesn't say how long. It just gets bigger and more beautiful, and more powerful, and more unstoppable. How does this happen? Well, the power of God accompanies the word when it's received into human hearts, when it's accepted and believed. Now, mark this, the the final resting place for, for the word of God is not in a book. It's not, you know, crocheted on a pillow. It's not... Um, even just spoken out into thin air. It's not just in your ears. The, way, the place the word is supposed to live is in our hearts. And when it's received in our hearts, it bears incredible fruit. It has incredible, powerful, it has incredible power. When that happens, when God's seed, his word, gets planted in your heart, the kingdom comes The rule and the reign of the king breaks into the world. And that's what's so surprising about this story, about this parable. I think that's what would have been offensive to the people in Jesus' time and confusing. Is that the word of God, the proclamation of the coming of the king of eternity, of history, comes not like a booming voice from a mountain or lightning and fire from heaven, but it comes like a little seed. It's easily ignored. It's prone to rejection. And Jesus says, hey, this is God's plan to change the world. The world is going to be changed by reading and hearing and receiving the word of God in people's hearts. The message goes out 
And this is the message. This is the word that's preached. Jesus has come to the earth as the Lord of creation. He died to atone for your sins. He fought for you and he won you back from death. He was raised to life and he sits in heaven and now he rules and reigns. And one day he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And if you turn and believe in him and follow him, you will find life. That is what the word is when it goes out. And when people hear that, the acorn grows into an oak. And the world is transformed using simple, unsophisticated methods. And when people heard that, they, 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 they would hear a seed. I mean, that's pretty basic. Isn't there a better way to, to deliver the word? I mean, especially in our time. God is going to change the word, the world, the entire universe. He's going to change the course of human history uh, by people reading a book. A book? <laughs> I mean, do people even read books anymore? Our world says, oh, okay, well, I understand. It's probably, it's probably going to be a really short book with a flashy cover. No, it's a, a huge book. And there's no pictures. And some of the covers are flashy, but most of them are just really plain. And the world says, that, that doesn't seem like a very good plan. Okay, well, maybe, maybe God's going to use to bring about the coming of his kingdom. Maybe he's going to use just really sharp people, just perfect people. Maybe that's who's going to use. Just the cream of the crop, the all-stars. And Jesus is saying, no, he doesn't actually use the all-stars. He uses imperfect people. He uses sinners to accomplish his, his, plan, to accomplish his plans. He uses sinners? Are you serious? That doesn't seem like a good plan. I mean, to me, to our world, to man's wisdom, it seems like a foolish plan. But the Bible says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So when we look at this book, we know it's not an ordinary book. And when I stand in front of you and I preach, I know that when I put these words into thin air, God shows up. Even though I'm imperfect. Because his word is perfect. Just to drive this point home, I'll I'll leave you with, with one a uh, little story uh, about the power, the surprising power of small things, of small beginnings, of small means, uh, and how it can bear surprising fruit. Uh, this is a true story. On February 2nd, 1738, there was a man who boarded a ship bound for America. Uh, he was leaving from the coast of England, and on the ship were several hundred sailors. Uh, And they hated this man. They hated everything that he stood for. They mocked him to his face. And it looked like this man was totally outnumbered. Now, this man was going to be on the ship with them four months. And so already you're thinking, the odds are really stacked against this guy. What's he going to do? What's going to happen to him? Well, I I, I need to tell you the rest of the story. Actually, this man's name was George Whitfield. He had been a friend of John and Charles Wesley at Oxford. And he wasn't just an ordinary guy boarding a ship. He was someone who was commissioned by God to preach his word. He was someone who had the word of God rooted and dwelling in his heart. And so when George Whitfield gets on the boat, this is what he said to all the sailors who are like half drunk and playing cards around him. He says, uh, by the way, just so you know, everyone, hello, I'm a Christian. And, and everyone's like, boo, boo. And he looks at them and he says, I'm a Christian. And I resolve to know nothing while I'm among you, 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they cussed him out. (laughs) They made fun of him. Every time they walked by, they would curse even louder. And then they'd say, oh, pardon, Reverend. Sorry, sorry. And but here's what happened. Whitfield's on the boat with these salty sailor guys who aren't interested in anything that he has to say. And then a few of them get sick. And so he shares some of his medicine with them. And then he learns that some of them can't read. And so he says, well, I'll teach you to read. I know how to read. I went to Oxford. I'll show you how to read. Let's, let's read together. And so he taught him reading classes. What do you think they read? The Bible. <laughs> The word of God. And so he's sitting with them, reading the word of God. He's encountering them. He's, he, he's hanging around them and he's praying for them. And within a month, when the ship stops in Gibraltar, he had already formed a choir from some of the sailors on the boat. They had built a little pulpit for him to start preaching to them. Just a few of them, the ones that wanted to listen. You know, They, they built a little pulpit for him on the deck of the boat and he started preaching services to them. Four months later, when, by the time they get to the coast of Georgia, the sailors are weeping and hugging him as he leaves the boat. And they're saying, we're so glad that you shared the word of God with us. They're giving him gifts. And these salty sailors who were cussing him out four months ago are embracing this man. One man, a couple hundred sailors who hate his guts. Who do you think is going to win? If that man's got the word of God, he's going to win every single time because God's word cannot be stopped. We sang this, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them. It abideth. It it abides. It continues. It persists. It doesn't need any of the earthly powers to help it. Satan, all of his powers, all of his temptations, all the trouble that he brings. Yeah, just a little word is going to knock him over. I love that. There's nothing special about George Whitfield. I mean, he was a great, a great man. But all he was was just a man with the word of God planted in his heart. Will you receive it? Will you accept it? Will you believe it? Will you submit to its authority? And will you let it bear fruit in your life? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Don't despise small things. May we have ears to hear.